everyone. If you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. What's going on, guys? It's Ash Bennington. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Today, I'm joined by Bruce Fenton, CEO of Chainstone Labs and host of the Satoshi Roundtable. Bruce, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ash. It's a pleasure to have you here with us for the very first time. Lots to talk about. We'll get to that in just a second, but I want to take a look at price action here on the day. Bitcoin trading right now at 24931 lost the 25 handle there. It's down about 4% trailing 24 hours, down about six and three quarter percent trailing seven days. We also have Ether trading at $1,640, also down, down about 6% trailing 24 hours, trailing seven days. It's off nearly 12%. Uh, obviously, it's been a little bit of a sell-off uh, when we look at these numbers. I also want to take a look at Tether, which has once again broken the buck, uh, trading on my screen right now at 99 spot 89, or I should say 0 0.9989. Uh, obviously, what you're looking at there is a peg break. You can see it sort of reaches its trough around 6 a.m. Eastern time today. Uh, it's obviously something we're going to be keeping a look at as well. All right, let's get back to the main event. Bruce, it's great to have you here with us. Obviously, people in the Bitcoin space, you are renowned the world over for your work in Bitcoin. For those who are new to this space, tell us a little bit about your background and your journey into Bitcoin. Well, I started in the traditional markets. You know, I've been uh, registered with the SEC in some form or another for 30 years now. Uh, so I and and actually, uh, even even before that, I, I worked unregistered ever since I was a teenager. So I started in the Wall Street business basically at, at around 14, and then I be, you know became a professional when I was 19, and I've you know I've been registered ever since. So and I had a you know wonderful career in that, doing all kinds of different things. You know, working with uh, you know some of the global poor all the way up to some of the wealthiest and largest pools of money in the in the world. Um, uh, but I always was interested in emerging markets and emerging technology. So, you know, how the world changes. And that brought me into the, you know, the dot-com boom and bust and the, you know, the, the growth of, of emerging markets like China and the Middle East. Uh, and then I, I was, you know, very interested in this emerging technology of Bitcoin starting back in 2012 or so. And by 2013, I was, you know, sort of full-time in, uh, in the Bitcoin business and have been, you know, ever since kind of, you know, merging those two worlds, the traditional finance world of securities with this exciting new technology of Bitcoin and distributed ledgers. You know, you and I share some aspects of that background. Uh, I think you were at Morgan Stanley. I was at Credit Suisse during uh, the dot-com bubble. It was an exciting time, but got hooked on the intersection of finance and technology. Talk to us specifically about how you discovered Bitcoin and how it struck a chord with you personally. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a freedom person. I've always been interested in uh, liberty and libertarian ideals. You know, I was a Ron Paul fan, and I'm uh, I'm up here in New Hampshire now. But be, but even before I moved to New Hampshire, there's a there's an event here. It's actually coming up in a couple of weeks called Pork Fest, uh, and that's where I, that's where a lot of Bitcoiners heard about Bitcoin. That's that crew, the sort of Liberty New Hampshire crew, was the first group that I heard uh, of it back in I think it was as early as 2011. People were talking about it, but there was a an event, you know, almost uh, you know 12 years ago this month. 
that uh, Eric Voorhees, Roger Veer, Charlie Schrem came up and and we're talking about you know liberty and uh, the the problems with fiat money and how Bitcoin can change this and and th- those were messages that a lot of us have heard now but kind of nobody had heard back then so right. uh, you, you know I think I think blockchain.com got like a record number of new wallets that weekend and uh, the rest is history. So tell us a little bit about the current state of play in Bitcoin. How do you see the ecosystem right now? Obviously, you've been looking at this for over a decade. Talk about the evolution that you've seen and where you think we are right now in Bitcoin. There's an exciting uh, emerging, you know, ongoing narrative where I think, you know, Bitcoiners have become increasingly sophisticated with an increasingly sophisticated narrative over the last decade. Uh, you know, it, and that's just because we've brought on higher and higher caliber people, you know, the Ross Stevens and the the Safetyans and the sailors of the world who all have, a, you know, an ability to articulate a, a very clear vision, uh, you know, for, for, you know, Bitcoin as money and, and also putting real money behind it in, in the cases of, of people like Michael Saylor and uh, institutions like Fidelity. So I, I think Bitcoin has become much more mature. It's a real asset. I've said many times going back, I don't say it as much now, but I used to always say it's a kind of binary play. It's either going to work or it's not going to work. And the odds of it not working are less and less over you know, over time, every day that it survives is is another day. And, you know, even the biggest critics, it's less common for people to say, OK, this is going to get wiped out and down to zero. You know, it's a real asset category uh, that's significant. It's bigger than a lot of global money. Um, it's bigger than a lot of other major global commodities. So it, it's big and it's here to stay. And there, there's an interesting narrative now about, you know, how it's going to be used money or also, you know, things being built on top of Bitcoin, second layer, you know, ordinals, uh, tokens, these kind of things, uh, and and where it fits in, you know, into the overall ecosystem with with other, uh, you know, types of digital assets. Yeah, you've just touched on a lot of important points there, a lot to cover. Uh, let's talk about how you see philosophically Bitcoin. I mean, it's interesting. It's one of those things that's kind of like touching the elephant in different places. You see different things. We could talk about the technology, the idea of how you come to distributed consensus. But one of the aspects about Bitcoin, I think that especially excites people who are passionate uh, about libertarian ideals, is this idea of essentially decoupling the money supply from the state. Uh, this technology allows you to do that. Talk a little bit about that framework, how you think about the m- relationship of the money supply to the state. Yeah, you know, the idea that the state should be in charge of money is is just kind of a broken idea. You know, the, for hundreds of years, the state was in charge of the church and the church and the state were the and then America came along and said, no, we're going to separate that. And that, I think most people, very religious people uh, and atheists alike would agree that that was a good idea. And if, you know, I ran for office uh, here, here in New Hampshire, I ran for U.S. Senate last year. And if you asked 100 Republicans and 100 Democrats what you think the ideal world should be and what the government should do, you'd get very different answers. Uh, you know, on the left, they'd say different priorities than the right would say. But almost none of them would say they want the, the, the government dealing with money. You know, if you ask 10 Democrats or 10 Republicans, they, they just don't really care about that. It shouldn't be a role that government should even be involved in. And we don't need them. And Bitcoin proves that we can have global money that is sound money, that is based on the rules of math and the laws of, of code rather than the whims of bureaucrats. It's just a vastly superior form of money. And big picture, what's important about that is that, you know, sound money has meaning. You know, if they can print money from thin air as they do, there's no accountability and it enables governments and tyrants all over the world to do evil things. So it's actually quite 
you know, serious magnitude. You know, it's it's actually good versus evil. You know, you you can you there are great evils in the world that are a result of the fiat money system. And there's a lot of also, uh, you know, other drawbacks that may or may not be evil, but they're they're certainly. Dr- I mean, even health. You know, health even suffers because you know the ability for money to print print, uh, you know, politicians to print money from thin air, uh, you know, they put that into all kinds of poor health p- policies, corn syrup subsidies, uh, you know, seed oils, these kind of things. Uh, and then there's more obvious uh, uses of, of uh, you know, government money like war, you know, never-ending war and a surveillance state and for-profit prisons and all of these kind of things. So at the end of the day, that's the most important use case of money is to be, you know, better money, that's sound money that, that uh, stops some of these shenanigans and some of this evil in the world. Now, the counter arguments that from particularly from Keynesian economists, you've heard these before, uh, the idea of, of course, there are bad things that happen in the world. uh, But on balance, the United States had a pretty incredible century in the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century, uh, where they had fiat money. And in fact, uh, used at times, this is just the argument from the Keynesians, they would say, uh, they used uh, control over the money supply or independent banks, uh, a centri- independent central banks control over the money supply here in the United States, the Fed, uh, was used to balance out, they would say, uh, periods of recession and inflation. Uh, and that on balance here in the United States specifically, and also in Western Europe, uh, pretty good 50 years for democracy and freedom. What's your response to that, Bruce? Well, you know, a lot of our best years were when we were on a gold standard. You know, we we had a lot of really great uh, growth in the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, the post-war, you know, post-World War II boom. Uh, and 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 we had a lot more freedom. We had a lot more economic freedom. And you know, yes, they started tinkering with the money, but it was a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. And I I think we've right. all seen the charts from the Federal Reserve and others where it's just been an absolute hockey stick. You know, you can kind of yes. get away with it and have economic growth in spite of bad economic policy. And there is a difference. There's a difference between you know printing a, a few billion dollars and a few trillion dollars. You know, it's a it's a thousand times more. And that's what the situation is now. You know, we're we're printing more in a year than. And, uh, you know, the entire history of the United States, all the way up into the early part of my career, uh, you know, we print more in a, in a month sometimes than our entire national debt used to be. You know, we've seen this hockey stick chart. So, you know, and this happens again and again. Uh, it happened in the Weimar Republic. It happened in the Roman Empire. It happened in Zimbabwe. You know, politicians get out of hand and they and they have, you know, worse and worse policies that, you know, print money from thin air and are ineffective. So, you know, I think if we went back to our roots, back to more of a sound money system, net net, we would be you know much better and also much more free. Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Bruce, I want to ask you about something you just mentioned, which was your run for the United States Senate. Uh, talk a little bit about what inspired you to do that. Obviously, that's not a decision that anyone makes lightly uh, here in the 2020s. I mean, they come after you, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Your life gets scrutinized in a way that it never does as a private citizen when you run for office. What made you feel so strongly uh, about the race that you wanted to jump into it? Well, you know, I think we're in a, a fourth turning. There's a great book in, in 96 that came out called A Fourth Turning, which talks about how every hundred years or so we have these, uh, you know, major cycles and shifts in the way that the whole world works. You know, the way that, you know, how, you know yeah. maps are changed and languages changed and, and, and beliefs are changed, money changes. And we are, we're definitely in those kind of times right now. We are in epic times of change. 
And it's going to come out either, uh, you know, a, a generation of evil and tyranny, or it's going to come out to be one of the greatest generations in history. And so I felt that it was important to, to try because I think America is in a very, very crucial spot. So I felt it's important to try because I care about my country. I care about humanity. I care about these deeply care about these issues of, of, you know, human rights and freedom and peace. So I threw my hat in the ring. I, I, I uh, the, the job doesn't appeal to me at all, honestly. I, 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 I feel I know all respect to people who try hard, and I know some, you know, people with great careers who've gone on to do things like U.S. Senate. For me personally, I felt it's a bit of a step down in lifestyle and uh, enjoyability. But um, you know, I was willing to kind of take one for the team. If I would have been sent down there, I would have done it. I, I, I might not have liked it, but if I could help America, I think that's worth it. And uh, and everybody should do their part. Their part to try and, uh, you know, even working in technology, I'm still continuing to do that. I think I might even be able to do more to help America and help the world by pursuing things like Bitcoin and decentralized ideals, cypherpunk ideals, than I might have been able to do, uh, you know, down there in, in the U.S. Senate. It's interesting, you know, the, the perspective of Bitcoiners here in the United States, you can almost divide it into two categories. There are people who uh, see Bitcoin as very much a global movement uh, with benefits for, you know, mankind in aggregate. And I think everybody in the second category believes that as well. Uh, but there are also people such as yourself who are very uh, pro-America. Uh, you obviously served in the United States Navy, a uh, background of uh, really being patriotic, wanting to serve the country. Talk a little bit about Bitcoin specifically as an American phenomenon. I think there are a lot of people uh, who particularly come from the traditional finance side who say, hey, look, you know, the United States dollar uh, is one of the reasons why the U.S. had such an incredible century. Uh, we shouldn't risk it uh, by switching away to a different standard. Talk a little bit about your view of America and Bitcoin and why you think Bitcoin specifically would be good for this country. Yeah, the best years we had for the dollar was when the dollar was backed by sound money and backed by gold. And, and we can do the same. We could have the dollar backed by Bitcoin. We can make Bitcoin legal tender. Bitcoin is sound money. At the end of the day, all of the shenanigans and tricks that politicians can do uh, can't make an economy good. Otherwise, Zimbabwe would be the wealthiest country in the world. Um, at the end of the day, the, the, the basis of a sound economy must be sound money. And that's what Bitcoin does. So anybody who cares about the economy, even if they don't like Bitcoin, should. But, um, you know, broader more broadly, uh, for, for your question about America, you know, Bitcoin is freedom. Bitcoin is, at the end of the day, speech. What happens is somebody named Satoshi took some code and wrote it down and gave it away for free. That's how Bitcoin was started. There was no fundraise. There was no pre-mine. There was no uh, securities offering or anything like that. Somebody wrote down some code and some ideas, and they shared that and said, this is open source. You can use it how you want. You can copy it. You can use it. You can run it. And people decided to run that code. The Supreme Court has already said that running code is a form of speech and writing code is a form of speech. So at the end of the day, that is that is a protected act in the United States. And uh you know, the fact that, that running that code uh, spins off these widgets that we call Bitcoin and we decide that those have value because we know that they're backed by math and code rather than by the whims of politician, that, that's a free market solution. Um, and and it, it also, you know, bringing us back to sound money has all kinds of benefits for the economy. And like I said, you know, it decreases evil. You know, we, we Americans wouldn't support some of the most evil things we do, the, the war on drugs, invasions all over the world, drone bombing people in different countries. We wouldn't support that if you had to come to each person and knock on their door and say, hey, give me 70 grand so I can go bomb someone or give me 70 grand so I can lock up a, 
a, you know, a weed grower in a, in a prison for a year. Americans don't support those things, but they can get the politicians can get away with it because they can print money from thin air. So we'd have a much better economy, much better jobs, uh, and we'd have a lot less evil if we if we embraced sound money. And it's just a good idea. It's pro freedom, and that's what we're we're all about. You know, we should have a lot more freedom in everything, securities and and everything across the board. Bruce, I want to give you some time to unpack and articulate your vision of what this looks like. Uh, let's go flash forward into the future three, five, ten years. Talk a little bit about your vision for Bitcoin uh, and how it would actually work in terms of the functional mechanics of a Bitcoin standard rising here in the United States and more globally. Well, the most important thing is is viewing more people viewing Bitcoin as money. Bitcoin has been my form of money since 2013. I went in all in and never came back. I've never been able to buy any more Bitcoin since then because I've always been all in, you know, uh, other than any incoming new, you know, new new uh, money. Um, so I think more people that embrace Bitcoin and see Bitcoin as money, more countries that embrace uh, Bitcoin, you know, we have El Salvador and I think there's going to be others. There's a lot of countries uh, decoupling from the dollar. Uh, so I'd like to see the United States and pretty much every country recognize Bitcoin as money. It might not be the only money. They may have their own uh, form of fiat, but to have Bitcoin broadly, uh, globally recognized and free uh, and, and also have it interacting with other digital assets. You know, I'm excited about the uh, the stock market, for example. I think you can tokenize the world. And I think that, um, you know, there's no reason that you should have stocks bound by borders the way they are now. Uh, there is, the, you know, there's a few regulatory hurdles, but the technology exists now for us to be able to move, we should be able to tokenize stocks and be able to move them around to have people carry them in wallets and move them across borders and have much smaller companies become uh, tokenized and have Bitcoin kind of driving this entire, uh, you know, digital based economy. You know, it's, it's been called uh, global money before, you know, it's borderless money and it's been called, uh, you know, the money of the internet before, you know, so I'd like to see that kind of those, you know, th those narratives go forward where this is money that the whole world accepts, uh, you know, pretty much every country accepts it. And it's, you know, widely used for settlement of the major transactions, you know, the trillions of dollar, uh, you know, markets like securities and real estate and these kind of things. Yeah. You mentioned something uh, that's been controversial in the Bitcoin community, which is the idea of ordinals and inscriptions. Uh, where do you come down on this? This is something that's divided Bitcoiners. Some saying, hey, it's a, fr a free and open platform. People should be able to do what they wish. Uh, others concerned about it clogging up the Bitcoin network in terms of volume of transactions. What are your thoughts? Yeah, that's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a great debate to follow in Bitcoin. And there's kind of, uh, you know, a couple camps, um, a couple major camps, and then a couple subcategories. There's some people who just think that all digital assets are junk and nothing should ever be built, and they don't see any legitimacy of any tokens. I disagree with that for the you know reason I just mentioned. Securities is a very simple and obvious example. Uh, collectibles is another. Although you know a lot of the collectibles, I, I don't I certainly don't advocate spending six figures on a JPEG. Uh, but you know I love collectibles. Collectibles is a multi-billion-dollar <laughs> yes, market. Always has been, always will be. By the and, way, we should uh, we should tell our listeners who are listening to this on a podcast about your incredible background. You have some really amazing comic book art uh, behind you. you, some incredible collectibles back there. A uh, couple and, orange coins too. Yeah. And, and, you know, so art is a, is a real market and digital art should be, you know, uh, World of Warcraft has suits of armor that cost $1,000 and they've held their value for, you know, 15 years now. You know, there's public <laughs> companies that haven't, haven't lasted that long. Uh, so I believe digital assets is a legit market and, um, 
it, although maybe a smaller, you know, it's, it's actually quite a big market, but it's, it's certainly not like securities, which is a very vast and very serious market. So I think there is legitimate uses for tokens. Some people don't think there is at all. So, so they may be in Bitcoin, say the only legitimate use is just money. Uh, but if you're in that category of, yes, there's other legitimate uses of tokens, well, then the question is, where do you build them? Do you build them on Ethereum or another chain? Or do you build them on the Bitcoin chain? Right. Um, I, I like Bitcoin because I'm a Bitcoiner, and I think that's the strongest chain, the most secure chain, the most censorship resistant. But you may not necessarily need that level of censorship resistance for certain tokens like, uh, right. you know, centralized collectibles. You may not need right. that that level. So I'm, I'm open minded to other chains uh, and, and I certainly love and support the idea. And, you know, personally, if I was to issue a security, uh, you know, I'm not that smart technically. So the, the, the caveman brain of me says, go with the simplest chain, the strongest chain, the most secure chain. At least I don't have to worry as much about Bitcoin being hacked or wrecked or, you know, uh, uh, validators or nodes or something, uh, you know, messing it up. And then you only have to worry about the second layer. So, you know, to me, it makes a lot of sense, but I'm, you know, certainly open-minded and supportive of, right. you know, other chains as well. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. So what do you say when people say, like, this is just an outrage, Bitcoin is here uh, to be the pay, the settlement layer, to be the strongest form of money globally, uh, keep your collectibles off of it? Well, I say you might be more happy in the closed source environment. This is open source software. <laughs> Satoshi gave it away and there's nobody uh, who can say whether this is a valid use or not. Um, you know, Satoshi Dice, uh, started by my good friend Eric Voorhees way back in the early day, did a whole mess of transactions. A lot of people were very angry uh, because he was doing so many transactions and kind of, you know, spamming the blockchain. Right. Uh, but any legit, any use that anybody can have, you know, even trolling, even trying to clog it on purpose, any, any any use is fair. All is fair in an open source decentralized network. And we, uh, as participants in that network, must rely on its ability to, to, to it's going to be okay. It's going to, the fees are going to adjust and, and scaling is going to adjust. You know, David Bailey says, uh, you know, he, he's, he's driving, he wants to drive higher fees so that he drives more scaling. You know, if it always costs a hundred bucks to do a transaction, that drives more people to second layer. So it's all going to work out. Uh, don't be afraid of open source is what I'd say. You know, let it go, let let experiments happen. And by the way, with this idea of tokens and ordinals and things like that being on built on Bitcoin, uh, if you have a permissionless network, scams will be built. You know, they, we will have on Bitcoin, we will have scams just like Ethereum had scams. Uh, and I think that's healthy because, um, uh, you know, a network that can pre prevent scams by definition is a closed network. And I, I'm all for openness and permission, you know, permissionless doesn't mean I'm for scams, obviously, but I'm right. for the base layer protocol to be as open and, and flexible and as cypherpunk as possible. Yeah, that's really interesting. The idea uh, that on open networks, bad things are going to happen. Uh, but bad things are going to happen anyway, I guess the argument goes. So why not do it in, a, in an environment of maximal freedom uh, and maximal uh, openness so that, so goes the argument at least, so that uh, the better ideas can chase out the worse ideas? Yeah, exactly. You know, you just let markets work. And this is part of the broader conversation going on about securities and everything. I, I Although I'm securities registered, and I bet I'm one of the most most licensed, uh, uh, regulated people in the, in the space. Uh, and I have been for a long, long time, but I'm actually against the idea of these regulations. You know, I, I think that uh, there isn't a good moral and ethical justification for them. And I don't believe that politicians are the answer. I don't think that central, I got into this space because I like 
decentralization. I don't want central control where politicians, even ones I like, uh, are sitting there telling people whether this is a good investment or bad investment. I just firmly believe that the markets are the best place to do that. Uh, and, and I think that the more freedom you have, it's not like a scam is just going to stay a scam forever. The more freedom you have, the more price discovery, the more information, the more trading, the more quickly the junk is going to be uh, you know, brought down to a fair price of zero, and the and the quicker the uh, you know the solid investments are going to rise up. A, a million eyes on something is a very, very, very good form of regulation. Much better than a, than one eye of a of a powerful regulator. Yeah, I mean, of course, the challenge is that uh, people do get hurt, particularly retail investors get hurt uh, along the way. And that's obviously a terrible thing. Since you mentioned regulation, I want to talk a little bit about what's happening right now with the SEC crackdown. Uh, SEC, of course, filing suit against Binance, uh, against Coinbase. You know, this is kind of an interesting question uh, to ask a Bitcoiner. Uh, people who are just coming to the space probably uh, are just trying to get their heads around all the complexity, all the different actors, all the different camps and subcamps that we were talking about earlier. Uh, many people in the Bitcoin space uh, actually kind of feel like it's just desserts. Uh, so that's something that, you know, when you think about cryptocurrency more broadly, that might be surprising to people who are still relatively new to it. One of the most interesting aspects of this uh, is it's seems uh, that based on the language that we've seen in those documents coming out of SEC and indeed in CFTC is that Bitcoin appears to be excluded from this broad crackdown uh, for a variety of reasons. Perhaps you could talk to that and talk to your views about what's happening. Yeah, uh, you know, Bitcoin is excluded for the, I think, primarily because of the reason that I mentioned at the end of the day, it's protected speech. You, you know, it's code that was issued and you can run it. And everything else is uh, secondary to that. So I think Bitcoin is very, very hard for them to attack, particularly given the messages that they, that they have. But I think that Bitcoiners would make a mistake to not think that they're coming for Bitcoin. I think that the government, mm. there's certainly powerful people who are against Bitcoin. I don't think they can stop it. I think it's even difficult to stop in the U.S. They could potentially uh, cramp down on it a lot and make it very difficult to use in the U.S. by shutting off off ramps and trying to regulate wallets or regulate miners or something like that. Uh, but that wouldn't affect it uh, globally. It might even rally globally. Um, so I think it's very difficult to stop, but I don't think people should uh, underestimate that. And I, and I think just either way, uh, Bitcoiners should be in favor of freedom. I think that the right. roots of this space have always been, you know, sort of libertarian ideals. And even if you don't agree with something, I, I mean, I don't even agree with alcohol. But I certainly know that prohibition was a failure. Uh, so I, you know, you know, I don't, I don't allow, uh, you know, methamphetamines on my farm, but. Uh, I don't believe that the state is the best solution to try and stop those things. Same with scams. I hate scams. I really, really, really don't like scams. I've seen a lot of people scammed in my career. Uh, however, I don't believe that centralized control is the best me method to stop scams because then you end up with people like Bernie Madoff, who was head of the largest regulator and also the largest scammer. And you, you end up with people like Sam Bankman-Fried, who was close with the regulators and the biggest political donor uh, and about to get special treatment apparently, and he was very registered. He had a regulated uh, company, uh, FTX Capital Markets is registered with the SEC, uh, and they turned out to be a scam. So 
Uh, you know, I just don't, I just firmly believe that the markets are the solution, that free markets right. are the solution. So I think it's a big error for Bitcoiners to be, uh, you know, r- rallying for these things. At the top level, I think the, the laws are completely immoral. It doesn't mean I'm trying to break them. I, I'm one of the few people who's actually bent over backwards and spent a lot of money and a lot of time to comply with them. And I actually predicted all of this coming, you know, five years ago. I knew that these kind of crackdowns were coming, but I still don't agree with them morally or ethically. I don't think they're right. And I think that uh, a healthier America would be one that was much more open. It shouldn't be the kiss of death to be a security in America. Securities are great. They're awesome. And they and they should be encouraged. And we should have it be a lot easier to issue securities uh, such as equity in the United States. Bruce, I've got one more question for you. And then I want to go to viewer questions because we've got some interesting ones that have come in. Just because it's breaking news today, BlackRock apparently is filing uh, to create a Bitcoin ETF. Uh, BlackRock, obviously, as uh, many people know, is the largest asset manager here in the United States. I mean, this is like the the metaphor uh, for TradFi, uh, large institutions. How do you feel about something like this? Well, I hope they succeed. You know, a lot of people have tried it. I've joked before, way back in 2013, I thought about doing this and uh, I, I thought it'd be a great idea to have an ETF. And then the Winklevoss brothers came along and I said, oh, well, they're they're real smart. They're very capable fellows and they have great lawyers. So they'll probably have this done in six months. No, no point in me doing it. I thought I could do it real fast because I had a Wall Street background. Uh, boy, was I wrong. I'm glad I didn't. I probably <laughs> would have been in the line just like them and even Fidelity and Van Eck and so many other very capable, very good companies companies with good lawyers who spent a lot of money in good faith. And sadly, our government has made it so that they have wasted that time and effort and uh, not been able to have a product out there that would help the public uh, and that the public wants. So, uh, you know, hopefully it gets approved. I, I wish that all of these would have been approved a long time ago. Okay, to questions from our audience. Here comes our first one from Etnam News on YouTube. Uh, boy, this is great. Talk about open sourcing things. This is a cool question for you and a tough one as well. I love Bitcoin, but the argument that it is a superior form of money hangs in the balance of its allocations. A more superior money, in my opinion, would have a fairer distribution. Essentially, what he's saying is, uh, boy, Bitcoin's great. I love it. But it's especially good for Bruce because he started buying in 2013. What about the rest of us? That's really the core of that question. Yeah, you know, um, fairness is an interesting thing. Uh you know, again, going back to markets, you know, is it fair that people were, I mean, it was only super, super geeks. You got to be some kind of very unusual person to be on the cypherpunks mailing list in 2010 and 11, uh, <laughs> and then have the technical ability to be able to start mining. I didn't have that. I, I came uh, a couple, a big couple years later, you know, the difference between 10 cents and a hundred dollars or something like that. Um, you know, there is an aspect of luck, you know, there's certainly, there's a billion people who don't uh, know how to read. They don't have phones. Um, and they don't have toilets, you know, and, and, and they, and they have, you know, you know, much lower life expectancy. So it's certainly extremely unfair to those people, you know, the global poor, there's the next tier of a couple billion people who live on less than $10 a day. Uh, and then there's people who just happen to be a cypherpunk and happen and, and, you know, and then also happen to have money. You know, there's a lot of early, uh, Bitcoiners, developers even, they just didn't have any money and they were younger and they're sleeping on somebody's couch. Um, but the combination of people who came in early, who had money, you know, there, there's a lot of a lot of factors in that. Luck is part of them. But at the end of the day, you know, Bitcoin ends up kind of where it's supposed to be. We All of us early adopters made mistakes. Uh, I'll probably never have the original stack of Bitcoin that I had. It's always, uh, you know, high, harder and harder uh, because I had to sell off some o- over time. Um 
And there's a lot of people that, uh, you, you know, you, you say, oh boy, I wish I would have bought it at 10 cents. Well, you, you probably sold it at 20 cents if you had done that. So, right. uh, <laughs> you, you know, you, it's never too late to make, and there's people who came in later. You know, there's a lot of people who came in later and they just ma made a commitment to it who ha have accumulated. So I, I think it could, it, you know, it could always be better, but I think it's, it's been quite fair and a pretty good, a pretty good model so far. Okay, next question comes to us from Diego Filomena on YouTube. Uh, Diego starts out with a comment. Great guest, he says. Please ask Mr. Fenton about Promethium Gate at Congress a couple of days ago. Boy, I'm glad you have to explain this one, and I don't. I should say, uh, this is a story that's still developing. Uh, the facts are still coming in, but you want to take a crack at this, Bruce? Yeah, sure. So basically what happened is Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, has been saying this line, uh, you know, come on in and register. And that is a lie, unfortunately. And I, and it's a, it's even a career risk. And it's it's something that I take seriously to, to say that the chairman of the SEC is lying. But unfortunately, we've got to have a clean industry and I don't want liars in my industry. And that unfortunately and bizarrely uh, happens to include the SEC chair right now. He is not being accurate when he says that. You can't just come on in and register. Uh, and there's many, many, many companies like ours who have registered and there's companies who've tried to register and can't for various reasons. And there's all kinds of drawbacks and delays and shenanigans, the kind of things that you see in a third world uh, country where it's more about who you know and what connections you have than it is about the letter of the law. And it has no place in America. So they've been pushing this line like, come on in and register. And those of us in the industry who know everything say, well, that's nonsense. You can't come on in and register. Nobody's ever succeeded in it. So surprisingly, last minute, uh, this company that's kind of sat around uh, dormant for several years just came along and got this very special and unusual license that no one else has called a special purpose broker dealer which enables them to be able to hold some crypto assets. Now, what's suspicious about that is that it came very late. It fits right into the narrative so that the SEC can say, hey, look, here's somebody who's done it uh, that you can register. Um, but there's a lot of suspicious things. As you said, it's an unfolding story. There's suspicious things about the funding coming from China, the leadership. Uh, a couple of them went to a law firm or, or uh, they, they got their law degrees at a law school that got uh, unaccredited. There's uh, the, the, the co-CEOs. Apparently, one of them doesn't even have a license and the other one has only had a license for a year. Uh, the the per person who the co-CEO who testified yesterday uh, or, the, or recently in, in Congress uh, isn't even licensed at all, and apparently his brother or some relative is the, is, the, is a co-CEO. Uh, so it's it, it to have this company that comes out of nowhere with no background that nobody's ever heard of uh, happen to just get this magical license that nobody else has been able to get. And also, by the way, still can't do anything. The license is a sham. Uh, you, you can't do anything with the license, but it sounds good. Uh, it's all quite suspicious, and I think it should be looked in, you know, very very carefully. I'm glad there's freedom of information requests out there. I'd like to see, you know, how did they get, how did this nothing company that nobody has ever heard of get invited to, to testify in Congress and uh, and exactly what happened behind there. It's, it seems like the government might've tried to pull a scam on the American people. Strong words, Bruce. Yeah, well, it's strong times. You know, you got to call it like it is. The truth is the truth. And I, you know, I stand by my words and I'd be happy to, uh, you know, go into depth or give examples to anybody who challenges it. But but we we need a clear, uh, clean economy. And, and uh, you know, I care about this business. I care about securities. I, I told you, I started my first job when I was 14. Before that, uh, at age seven, I grew up on the floor of a brokerage firm. You know, I've been in this business my whole life and I want a clear business and I want a business. I want an industry that's going to drive America forward 
that's going to have securities that are working the way that they are supposed to work. And to be able to have uh, you know, a long tail of, of thousands and thousands of publicly traded companies that we can move around easier and have securities be unlocked for the potential that they are. These are deeply important things to me. So when, right. when we have scammers in our industry, I don't want them in our industry. And if those scammers happen to be the regulators, I'm going to call them out and I'm going to do everything I can to get them to clean up their act or get out of our industry and let the innovators move forward and make a better nation and better a better economy for everybody. Yeah. Well, as I said, very strong words. It's going to be interesting to keep an eye on this. By the way, I should say uh, two things about this story that's developing right now with Prometheum. Uh, number one, as I said, uh, some of these revelations are just coming to light. Uh, we haven't had a chance to independently verify them. I'm sure this story is going to be on our radar for some time, and I'm sure more information is going to come out. Uh, second, interest of full disclosure, I interviewed Aaron Kaplan uh, back in March. In fact, I have not had a chance to rewatch this interview in light of what's come out, so I'm going to have to do that. Uh, but if you'd like to go take a look, uh, it's up on the website, on the Real Vision website, and I believe it's on YouTube as well, if you'd like to take a look at that conversation. Obviously, more to come. I imagine there's going to be a lot more chatter about this story uh, as we get more facts coming in. Bruce, this has been a really incredible conversation. Uh, it's been great to have you on the show. I hope you'll come back and join us again soon. Uh, let me ask you this, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and our listeners with from this conversation. Well, I, I think that freedom is, is so important and it sounds really basic and it sounds almost silly to say, you know, that we've got to be thinking about freedom, but we really do because the idea of peaceful people being harmed by the force of government, by men with guns is something that we should all be deeply, deeply concerned about. So I encourage everybody to, you know, read things like the road to serfdom, you know, Hayek and Rothbard and, you know, maybe go to something like pork fest up here in New Hampshire in a couple weeks, or, you know, look at these ideas, you know, you know, watch some videos by Tom Wood. Or, or or Jeffrey Tucker or something like that, and, and think about how these things apply and how hopefully our uh, distributed uh, ledgers and technology like Bitcoin can make the world a better place and a more peaceful place that that gets rid of centralized control and and the power of tyrants and puts the power in the in the power of of, of human beings uh, led by math and and code. Bruce, I have a question for you about Porkfest. How's the food? They have actual pork. Uh, I don't eat pork, but uh, I think somebody probably does. Um, and it's pork stands for porcupine, which is yeah. the state uh, the state motto of uh, of uh, or the state mascot of New Hampshire. So, and it's also kind of a libertarian mascot. You know, the Republicans um, and Democrats have the elephant and the donkey, and the libertarians have the porcupine. Yeah, I'm looking at the website right now. Family Friendly Freedom Festival. Uh, looks like it's a place you can camp as well. It looks beautiful uh, in the mountains there of New Hampshire. Yeah, it is. It's it's fun. Uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. I I, I go every uh, usually every year. And there's a good crowd. There's a lot of a lot of big cars, and there's there's several presidential candidates who are going this 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 year, um, and and other figures. Uh, 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 Kennedy. Uh, RFK Jr. is 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 going, and uh, Vivek Ramaswamy is going. Um, I think Tulsi Gabbard is speaking, and some other p political figures, and a lot of you know real liberty people as as well. So it's a you know it's it's a good event. I always recommend. It's not for everybody. Uh, it's it's a little rough around the edges, and and if you're scared of guns and things like that, you might be out of your comfort zone. But I strongly recommend it to everybody, uh, just to be. 
to these kind of ideas. A lot of people are somewhere on the spectrum from, you know, status authoritarian to lefty to righty to libertarian. But, you know, these people are another level. There's a lot of, you know, very uh, smart thinkers about uh, uh, ANCAP values and libertarian ideals that you can hear from. And, and they've thought their positions through quite thoroughly. So it's it's a real treat to talk to some of these folks. So I, I highly recommend it for everybody to just to, even if you hate these kind of ideas, to be exposed to them and, uh, you know, at kind of the highest level. Well, that's very well said, and that's certainly what we believe here in Real Vision. Uh, no political biases. We have everybody on, despite my own libertarian leanings. Uh, always good to have open conversation, free conversation, and a variety of voices. Bruce Fenton, thanks so much for joining us. I hope you'll come back Thank again you. soon. Absolutely. Thanks for watching, everybody. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.